Hello, this is Rob, and this is episode 15 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, it is hard to believe, but we are 15 episodes into the Folly Coffee podcast. It seems to have gone by in a flash. I've already gone through all my reserve episodes, and so now I'm actually having to catch up and record on a week-to-week basis. I'm hoping to stockpile a few episodes this week, including one that Jeff and I recorded while in Nashville for the Coffee Tasters Championship this year. I'm going to, if you follow us on Instagram, you already know the news, but I'm going to keep that a little secret for hopefully next week's episode if Jeff and I can get on our horses and get that recorded. But I was looking back on all the episodes of Folly Coffee and realized that I don't even have an episode about how I started Folly Coffee or about how I started Filteric Cold Brewed Coffees. And so... That's what I decided to do today. I've done podcasts with other people about, you know, like the Folly Coffee story, my personal story, how it all started. But I realized that if someone isn't following these other podcasts that I record them with, they actually don't know what Folly Coffee is. They don't know what Filterra Cold Brewed Coffees is in terms of the story and how we started and what we're about. So today's podcast is going to be all about kind of my story leading up to Folly Coffee, Folly Coffee, how that led into Filterra cold brewed coffees, and then where we're at as of today, January 28th, 2020, where we're at as a business, where we want to go with both of these companies. So I'm going to start with my story. Uh, So my personal story, I grew up in Plymouth, Minnesota, went to Wyzetta High School uh, in college. I went to Dartmouth College, played football out there, and it was in my later years at Dartmouth that I was kind of, I was a psychology major, but had interest in marketing and sales, was able to take some graduate level uh, marketing courses, and those really resonated with me. And so at an internship I had here back home over a winter, I had a really awesome mentor, and I, I asked him, I said, if I want to get into marketing and sales, what should I do? And he said, well, if you're going to do marketing or sales, you should start in sales because your experience in sales will lend itself to marketing. If you start in marketing and then end up that you want to do sales, you'll kind of have to start back at square one. So if you're going to do it, if you want to go to sales and marketing, start in sales. Then I go, well, okay, what do I sell? And this is the answer that's kind of difficult to hear when you're uh, about to graduate college. Everybody around you is getting all these awesome jobs. It's like May and I'm, I'm still scrambling to try to find something and I know I want to do sales. And he said, sell anything, which is both helpful and also a bit daunting. And so I started going out and looking for different sales jobs and found some that like kind of fit what I wanted to do and actually got a job offer doing kind of more marketing type stuff for a healthcare company. And I was like, okay, like marketing, I kind of wanted to start in sales and healthcare doesn't really get my my blood pump in there. And, uh, and, And then all of a sudden I found this job posting for craft beer sales with Sam Adams. Um, at the time, I was a huge craft beer enthusiast in like the most broy way possible because 
uh, I was in, I played football, but I was in the hockey fraternity because I was from Minnesota. I'm like, I totally vibe with these people. So I was in the hockey fraternity and I was uh, social chair of that fraternity because I was one of three guys in the house that could lift a keg on their own, uh, which was just a, an honor to be elected that way. So I could go on the, the beer runs on my own. And so I would go to the local uh, beer shop Stinson's and pick up a massive quantity of Keystone Light. But uh, one time I was in there, I noticed this full row of doors of like these insane beers that I didn't even know existed. And so I started every time I would go pick up all these Keystone Lights, I would pick up a six pack here, or a four pack there. It's the most notable one I remember early on that kind of changed my my whole perception of beer was the Sam Adams Double Bock. It was nine percent. It was sweet. It was big. It was roasty. And uh, so every time I went back, they started actually just giving me uh, a free six pack of craft beer since we were buying Keystone Light every week. <laughs> and so I made this proposal to uh, uh, to the fraternity that hey guys. Um, I propose that we devote 5% of our social beer funds, which keep in mind, the social funds is a very touchy topic because we're always running out before the trimesters are over. So I'm saying let's devote 5% of our social funds into good beer and I'll keep them in my room. But I'll have an open door policy. And so somehow I was able to convince everybody that, hey, it would be awesome to always have great beers on hand. My room was easily accessible. I never locked my door. And so they agreed. And I learned a lot because I would be sitting in my room and people would walk in and say like, oh, I want a great beer. You go, well, what do you like? And so I learned a lot about craft beer before finding this job posting. And so right away I found it. I was like, oh, man, I didn't even know like beer sales was a thing. And looking into that company, they had extensive sales training. It was something that I was passionate about. It was a company that was an industry leader within craft beer. And so sure enough, after I applied, uh, after five rounds of interviews, I ended up getting the job. Uh, The most notable thing about this whole process was that initial round was one of those weird video interviews where it's, you're not even talking to someone, you're recording yourself talking and it just gives you a prompt a question prompt it gives you 30 seconds to read it and then you have three minutes to respond to it and so I actually sat down with uh my 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 group of buddies that I called the brain trust because I don't for some reason trust myself with a lot of personal decisions because I can kind of uh, get tunnel vision and so I threw it out there hey I've got this health care job offer and I've got the Sam Adams thing and they're like you could sell beer like we're doing, like you got to do that. And so I said, well, if I'm going to do this weird video interview thing, I have to make it memorable. So what I did is one of my friends had a Sam Adams t-shirt. I put that on with a blazer over it. I sat in a room that had beer bottles behind me. I borrowed a Sam Adams tin sign from a local, uh, from the local beer shop. I hung that up behind me. And then after every question, I would have my buddy out of screen hand me a different Sam Adams from the variety pack and I would take a sip of it and say what I thought of it. And uh, it was a bit risky, but they loved it. And that was a moment, the reason I go into so much detail about this process is that was a moment that I realized that it's like, oh, having fun and being different, even though at the time may seem really risky, 
it's going to be an advantage. And I don't know if it hit me with that much impact at the time, but it's definitely guided how I look at different scenarios in business. So anyway, I end up working for Sam Adams. Uh, I was trying to get back to Minnesota, but I actually ended up landing in Chicago, which was kind of a, a blessing in disguise because it, it put me out of my comfort zone. And I was in a city where I didn't know anyone uh, for the first time outside of college. And college is different because nobody knows anyone and everybody's uh, kind of looking to meet people. Whereas you land in a, a brand new city, I'd never been there before moving there. There, uh, working a brand new job fresh out of college. And so uh, the, the job I had at the time was like a brewery representative. So I, I was just pure feet on the street sales. It was like a very entrepreneurial job in the sense that you had a territory, you were required to hit 10 to 12 accounts a day. When I say accounts, anywhere that's selling beer. In Illinois, you can sell it in grocery stores. So I was hitting grocery stores, liquor stores, uh, bars, restaurants, anywhere that's selling beer. I'm hitting 10 to 12 accounts of those a day. But it was very independent. And so it was a great opportunity to learn not only like sales, they have extensive sales training, and that helped a lot in learning of how to approach uh, sales in in a way that both sides benefit. Uh, that was a really valuable part of the process, but it also taught me just like the sheer grind of growing business. Uh, in this case, in my territory, I was in charge of growing the Sam Adams book of business in my territory and what it took. It was 10 to 12 accounts a day. It was account management. It was relationship building. It was all of that. And so after about a year and a half of doing that in uh, North Chicago, all the way up to the border of Wisconsin, um, I got an opportunity for a promotion down to Southern Illinois. And so it, when I was in Chicago is when I became like a huge beer nerd, got my Cicerone certification, which is like the, the beer version of a, a wine sommelier. Uh, and then I got a promotion down to Southern Illinois where I was doing uh, a little bit more distributor management. So I was uh, managing two or three distributors in Southern Illinois uh, and also calling on key accounts. So it's kind of a hybrid role. Again, very autonomous, very independent. So I was learning a lot of skills at 24 years old uh, with a, a lot more responsibility looking back at that age than maybe I should have been given. But I, I think is a huge benefit knowing that age is kind of not a factor if you're willing to work hard and learn and apply what you're learning and continue to grind it out. And so this was around the time that coffee became a part of my life. Uh, so I was 24, yeah, 25, 25 at the time. And I had just spent the last four months, three hours of studying every day going for my advanced Cicerone, which is the second highest level. And I missed it by three points. And so it was at that time that like I had been studying three hours a day for three or four months. And it became this norm that after work every day, I studied for three hours and I didn't pass. And I decided I'm just going to take a little break and go for it again. It was during that little break that a coworker of mine saw me drinking really crappy coffee. Just, you know, it was some meeting where we we're all together and it was hotel coffee. He's like, what are you doing drinking that? And he pointed me towards a list of roasters that I was allowed to drink at. And so fortunately, the first place I walked into, uh, still one of my favorite roasters, Sump Coffee in St. Louis. And I still remember the coffee. It was a naturally processed Ethiopian Yurgachev. And so for those who are coffee nerds, the, uh, the natural process is 
where they allow, so the coffee bean is the seed of a cherry, and they allow that to dry on a raised bed, and the sun, when it hits the cherry, creates this natural fermentation characters, which imparts some really fruity berry-like notes, and the Yirgacheff region specifically is known for its extreme blueberry notes. But at the time, I didn't know any of this. I was just like, that's the first one on the menu. Uh, my, my co-worker told me to go here uh, and drink a coffee, so that's what I'm doing. And not really knowing what to expect, because I just drank coffee to stay awake and continue to hit these 10 to 12 accounts a day. And when I had that first sip, it was just like this, like, whoa. Like, what? flavors are these i'd never tasted anything quite like it it has it had like these fermenty properties reminiscent of a red wine it still had that roasty profile that i can that people consider to be coffee but it wasn't astringent and or bitter it was balanced and sweet and luckily it was like the middle of the afternoon so there's no one there and so i could talk the barista's ear off and i'm like what is going on with this coffee like what'd you put in it and he explained, he's like, we, we don't put anything in our coffees. That's just black coffee. It's the, it's the coffees we source. We are very intentional about how we source our coffees from which farms and the processing methods that are being used. We're very intentional about the roasting to make sure that the roast profile, the curve of each roast is perfect for the bean that we're roasting. We're also very particular in the way we grind and brew our coffees, and it results in these flavors you're tasting. Those are all naturally present. There's nothing being added to that. So those blueberry notes, there's no blueberry syrup or anything. That's just the natural processing method combined with the way we roast that coffee. And that just blew my mind. Because a part of the Cicerone process in pursuing that like beer education is I learned a ton about food. I taught myself to cook so that I could pair with beer. Uh, I was home brewing, so I was learning a lot about flavors and how they interacted and building recipes, not just with food, but with beers and all across the board. I became extremely interested in flavors and new flavors. And here was something that I didn't even know existed, specialty coffee. And so right from that first cup, it was like I... I'm all in. I need to know all about this. And it, at this point, it was just for fun. Like I, I was still had still doing my job. And Sam Adams actually was in Southern Illinois at Champaign for a total of one year. I uh, ended up getting another promotion down to St. Louis, which if anything, just kind of was a catalyst to my coffee experience because St. Louis has some really amazing roasters. I'm thinking like Sump Coffee, Blueprint are doing like amazing, innovative things in coffee. So I was able to frequent those shops and taste their rotation of coffees and learn a lot about origins and processing methods and brewing methods. And then I was able to start learning to brew really great coffee at home on my own. And another great thing about St. Louis is like its central location in the country, it was very easy to drive to neighboring cities, whether it's Chicago or Nashville and the centrally located airport, it was easy to get really cheap flights out to the West Coast. And so it was about a, a year of being in St. Louis when it was, it was the first time that it, I really thought uh, this might be something I want to pursue because I wasn't sitting at Sam Adams going, man, I, I need to start a business. I just, I just need to find out what it is. I just need to find out what business that is. As soon as I figure it out, I'm out of here. I was really happy with my job. I had amazing coworkers, great leadership in that company. Things were going really well. Um, but the passion for coffee and then seeing what was happening in the industry eventually led to that moment. And that moment was in Seattle, ironically, right? 
oh, coffee in Seattle, crazy, man. I didn't know about that. It's like, no. Okay, so the reason is, is I did a couple trips out to the West Coast strictly to learn about coffee. And one of them was to Seattle. And I assumed going out to Seattle that it was going to be Starbucks everything. That everybody would be amped on Starbucks. That's our hometown brand. So it's like uh, being in school out east and going to Boston a lot. Like Dunkin' Donuts. Like Dunkin' Kid. Freaking Dunkin' Donuts. That is the, oh man, that's my stuff right there. That's the best coffee in the world. And so I expected to go out to Seattle and have it be a really similar vibe with, uh, with Starbucks. Just because of hometown pride. The amazing story of what Starbucks was able to do beginning in the early 80s in bringing lattes and espresso and better coffee to America. But when I went out there, the excitement with younger coffee drinkers was in high-end specialty coffee, specifically the third wave style. Third wave style generally being a much lighter roasted roast profile with really high quality coffee. And the reason this brings out different flavors is because... Americans in general are used to a much darker profile. When you roast a coffee darker, what you're tasting is not as much the bean anymore as much as it is the actual roast on the bean. And the way I put it is like if you were to get a hamburger and you were to get it, I want that thing charred, it's going to taste bitter and burnt. As, as opposed to if you were to grill it lighter, you're going to get better flavors. And so I compare that to coffee in a way that if you roast something really dark, you're going to really just be tasting those bitter, astringent, harsh, harsh notes. And that's why most people, when they think of the flavors, uh, the flavors that come to mind when they're thinking about coffee are bitter, are burnt. That first sip of coffee they've ever had is like gross. How does anybody ever drink this? Then they like the caffeine and so they just get used to it or they add a bunch of cream and sugar. And the reason people add cream and sugar is because cream lightens the flavor and sugar sweetens it. Uh, sweetness is the opposite of bitterness. So that makes sense. If I have a really dark roasted bitter coffee, I add sugar to take the edge off that bitterness and that, that astringency, that like intense roastiness, you add cream to lighten that up. So it's not as unpleasant. Whereas if you have an excellent light roasted high-end coffee, it's going to be naturally sweet. It's going to have a lot of natural flavors present that you don't want to cover up with that. And that's what fascinated me. So when you go out to Seattle, I had this moment where I realized that all the excitement with younger coffee drinkers was in these high-end third-wave style specialty coffee roasters. And having been in the beer industry and having done a lot of research on food and beverage, I knew it to be true that food and beverage trends tend to be anywhere from 10 on the low end, 15 years behind on the high end in the Midwest. So food and beverage trends tend to start on the West Coast, California being a big player in this, and traveling to the Midwest, but usually about 10 to 15 years behind. This isn't just coffee. This is everything from beer to uh, like kombucha is a great example recently. A lot of the more health conscious options that are available on the market originated in California or the West Coast. It's not always true, but most of the time it tends to be. And so I saw what was happening out there. And this was the first time that I go, I need to look into specialty coffee as a business. So it'd been two years of just loving this stuff and going around and tasting every coffee and finding every roaster. Uh, and when 
that sparked that moment. I found that the trends of specialty coffee really, really closely resembled the trends of craft beer in the early 2000s. So at the time, it was like 2015, 2000, about to be 2016. And I realized that, sure enough, this is resembling really closely what happened in craft beer in the early 2000s. So my prediction was, and it was a bit of a risk, but my guess is that it will continue to grow the way craft beer did. And if 10 to 15 years down the road, it can be in the Midwest what it is on the West Coast right now. Anyone that can start a business in the next couple of years being quality focused, roasting amazing coffees and doing it at a level that is worth the, the extra cost of buying better coffee, there's a chance for success. And so I found this opportunity kind of snuck up on me in a way that here I am, 26 at the time, thinking I have an opportunity here to start something I'm passionate about, that I'm willing to work hard at, and has a chance of success because of where this industry is going. And so at that time, I didn't say, I'm going to start that business. I did the opposite. I said, I need to convince myself out of wanting to start this business. Like I said, I had a job I loved. I, it was the trajectory of my career was looking good. I had coworkers I really respect and enjoyed. Uh, and and you know, the leadership of the company was great. And so I wanted to convince myself out of this because the risk of it versus what I was on was extremely high. But after doing more and more research, I fell more in love with the coffee industry completely vertically from the growing to the harvesting to the importing to the relationships within it, the coffee community. I started going to a lot of coffee events. I went out to Nashville to Coffee Fest and just absolutely fell in love with the industry. The trends, those that initial research I did of trends, the deeper I dug into that, the more and more it proved to be true. And then looking at the different sales channels of coffee were pretty dang close to sales channels for beer. And so the biggest risk I took in the process was assuming that my experience selling the, the Sam Adams portfolio would transfer directly to coffee. And I'll touch on that a bit later when I talk about actually launching Folly Coffee. And so when I, I ultimately made the decision, um, my, my, my lease was up in May of 2017. And I'd probably say it was around March after like almost three years of being passionate about coffee, a year of trying to convince myself out of it. But eventually I was like, you know what? Single, don't have any kids. I no real obligations. Like obviously everybody has their own obligations, but no like high stakes obligations as a single 27 year old dude with no kids, uh, having spent the last four years moving city to city selling beer. <laughs> so uh, at this point in March around, I, I decided I'm going to use all my free time to build a business plan. So I was still working. I wanted to make sure that I'm not you know, skimping out of my job duties. But I did have in my mind that May is when I'm going to leave. And so I built a business plan. And the main goal of the business plan was, one, obviously to put strategy down on paper. But the main goal of this business plan was to be able to convince my parents to let me move back in with them. Because uh, <laughs> it's I, 
I definitely have the personality type where I have like a new obsession every few months and something piques my fancy and I learn as much as I can in a few months. And once I feel like I kind of know enough about it to be able to talk about it at a somewhat of a length, I move on to the next thing. And so before even approaching them, because I know they'd be like moving back home, quitting your job and you're going to do what now? Coffee? what? And so when I approached them about it, I had already laid out a full business plan of uh, the initial branding ideas, the go-to-market strategy, why the industry makes sense, why the timing makes sense, my predictions for the industry over the next five to 10 years. And also I, I had this notebook that I kept over this past year of trying to convince myself out of it where I had hundreds of cafes I'd visited, uh, cafes and roasters and coffee places with extensive notes about like, here's what I think is working. Here's what I think doesn't work. Here's what I want to do and why. So it, it showed that I didn't just do this over a weekend. It, it's been something that I've been thinking about seriously for quite some time. And so after showing them that they were awesome because they let me move back home. So I was able to move back home May of 2017, packed up all my stuff into my car, drove back home. Uh, and at this time, the month leading up to moving back. So at this time, I was sample roasting. I bought an Alio Bullet R1. It's a, about a 100, I use about 500 grams, but you could, you could do like a one pound batch on this sample roaster. Uh, and I bought the first run of it before they'd even launched a market and got a sick deal on it because of that. And so I'd been sample roasting in St. Louis for fun. Uh, on and off for about a year and realized very quick. My initial plan was, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll learn to roast and I'll be the roaster and I'll go buy a commercial roaster when I move back and we'll get it going. And I quickly realized that it's not hard to roast a good coffee. If you source a really high quality coffee and you do a decent enough job, it'll be a good cup of coffee. It is very, very difficult not only to roast a great coffee, but to consistently roast a great coffee. And so while I was sample roasting, I realized this. And so I knew that if I was going to do this at the level I wanted to do it, I would need to find somebody who had experience with commercial roasting. So I could partner with somebody doing commercial roasting and I could be the person tasting the coffees and giving feedback and dialing in the flavor profile. So it's the third wave style and the taste profiles that attracted me and the things that were growing in the industry. And that would be the, the deal. And so I actually, this was, uh, I had a friend who used to work at a coffee importer. And he said, I, I, I've got a guy that moved to Minneapolis, um, is roasting and it expressed interest in starting his own roasting company, but ultimately ended up working for a roaster. He put me in contact with him and we got really far into the discussions about forming a partnership. And um, it was tough because I, I moved back and with the assumption that he, he was going to roast the coffee at the roaster he was working for, and I would pay that roaster. Uh, I'd pay them by the pound, and then he was salaried there, and so he'd get paid. Uh, and ultimately, at the last second, it just we, we didn't see eye to eye on what that would look like, and it fell through. And so I'd quit my job, moved back in with my parents, and I picked up like four 
random odd jobs because I knew that even if my cost of living was very low, living at home, no real major expenses outside of just personal expenses, and I didn't have a life, uh, you know, didn't really have a life because I was working four jobs, so really low expenses. But the reason I got those jobs is because I knew I would need to save as much money as quickly as possible. So I was, uh, uh, <laughs> as a high school strength coach over the summer, my old high school strength coach hooked me up, and uh, that was like RJ, shout out. Uh, that was a huge hookup because it was a it was a great job for the summer. It allowed me to do it in the morning, and then I could go bartend and bar back at night downtown. And then after that bar closed at eleven, I would drive for Lyft until about two a.m. And so that's what I was doing basically with all my time when this fell through. Um, now is. I consider myself to be like really stupid lucky. Uh, it's the the whole the old conundrum of like, well, is, is this skill? Is it intelligence? Is it uh, or is it luck? And I think luck has played such an insane big part of my life, uh, especially with folly, because that week. So get this, the the weekend before, that's the last email. Hey, I don't think this is gonna work. We're both gonna go a different direction. It just dissolved. That week, Wednesday, I go to a farmer's market and I just like farmer's markets, but also I like to check out what people are doing in coffee at farmer's markets. And sure enough, there is a guy selling coffee out of the back of his car. Pretty, you know, pretty, uh, like pretty simple setup. And I sampled the coffee and was like, this is like really good. Like, this is really good. Uh, like what, what do you roast on? Cause farmer's market's very hit or miss. You get some ro- people that are just like hobby roasters and have what I was doing, sample roaster doing one pound batches. It's for fun. I just like to sell farmer's markets. C- quality can be very inconsistent. Uh, and it tends to be a lot of people who are very new to roasting. And so the profiles are just not there to make an excellent cup. But this, this coffee jumped out at me and I was like, what, like, what do you roast on? And he took out this clipboard and showed me a Diedrich IR-12. It's a commercial size roaster. He had bought it from a flooded cafe in Delano, rebuilt it himself, and was roasting in his pole barn warehouse outside the back of his house in Silver Lake, Minnesota, an hour west of Minneapolis. And he was just roasting for farmer's markets on the weekend. And so right on the spot, I said, this might sound weird, but could I come roast with you? I'd, I'd really like to see your setup and uh, see your roasting process. And so uh, after that first roasting session, I kind of pitched him on the idea of folly. Uh, and I'll go back to the naming process of folly, how that went down. But I pitched him on the idea of folly that I want to bring high-end light roasted coffee to Minnesota in a big way. And I needed somebody to be able to do the commercial roasting. Now, he had just met me. Some stranger at a farmer's market is now... <laughs> Because he's the nicest guy, he invited me out to his home to roast with him. But still, he said, well, I, you know, I need to think about it. And uh, so we ended up roasting two other times with each other. Uh, and after the third time, he said the agreement was, if you help me get my commercial license. So what that meant was we need to build his space to get his commercial license. He would roast for me. And... Uh, and we thought that, and I agreed to that. And so outside of those four jobs, any night I had off, I would go out to Silver Lake and Ken just like knows how to build everything. Um, I mean, like he designed the walls that needed to be built. He designed all the surfaces to make them food safe compliant, all the seals. And then 
I would just come in and basically just do like heavy labor. And so I'd like building the walls, like up on a ladder using a nail gun. That's maybe like the second time in my life I'd used one. We're building the wall on the inside of the pole barn warehouse. We're sealing the floors. We're, uh, he's putting in electric and we basically build a roastery from scratch. Uh, outside of the existing roaster itself. And uh, this, again, was like all learned on the fly. In terms of the layout of the roaster, I literally just Googled ideal layout for a roaster and then fit it to the space we had out there. And that's the layout we use. And it's the layout we continue to use. And it's actually still working out really nicely. Uh, And and so that three-month, we we projected it to be a three-month project. It turned into a seven-month project. the reason, the major reason being is all that stuff I was just talking about did take three months. But then at that point is when we started to involve the state. We, we already had, the, they had approved our plans before we built anything. And so after three months, we went back to them and said, Hey, can you come check it out? What else is needed? And they come out and go, Oh, well, you know, you need, um, you, you need a hand washing sink, a three compartment sink and a mop sink. And we go, okay, um, we have a hand-washing sink already installed here. There's the mop sink. We actually don't have any dishes, so we don't need a three-compartment sink for washing. No, it's a requirement even if you don't have dishes. And we go, okay, well, it's an unanticipated job and a little bit extra, but okay. Um, And then they say, oh, by the way, now that you have a third thing pulling water, so the hand-washing sink, mop sink, and three-compartment sink, now you can't have a one and a half, you know, I don't know exact numbers anymore, but like now you can't use your existing one and a half inch pipe. You have to have a two inch pipe. So you're going to have to go in and completely tear out this pipe that exists and make sure you have a two inch pipe so that it can fit in this third sink that I still don't think we need, but we, we use it. So maybe it was worth it. Um, and so that added a lot of time and then just like multiple inspections and, and they would not allow us to do all the pipe work because we were not licensed contractors. Uh, they, allowed us to do everything else. Actually, technically, we weren't, weren't even supposed to do the electric, but Ken had, had done electric, so he just did it. And then they're like, you shouldn't have done that. And we go, now what? And they go, well, if you can get a master electrician to sign off on your work, we'll sign off on it. And Ken knew a master electrician. He came in and said, this is better work than I see most anything out there. So that worked out really well. Uh, but that whole process starting in like May or June ended up taking six, seven months, and we were able to launch in January of 2018. Um, Yeah, and so I'm going to pause there for a second. So that is everything from me, fresh out of college, all the way up to the day we launched Folly Coffee in terms of the physical, like, how did we do it? How did we build? How Who's doing the roasting? What was the concept of, like, what we were trying to accomplish with, like, amazing, high-quality, light roasted coffee? Then there's the other side of like go-to-market strategy, branding, who are you going to sell to, how are you going to sell to them, how are you going to get a foot in the door. This was, yeah, this was definitely more daunting than even building the place out because like building the place, we knew exactly what we needed to do. And it was way harder than we expected because of all the different steps along the way, all these different hurdles we had to jump through or jump over, uh, and all these unanticipated things we had to include in the build out. But like, once you know what you have to do, it might take more time than expected, but it's going to get done. Whereas building a brand is really, really tough because you can start anywhere. 
it's not like you're choosing, it's not like somebody's showing you two pictures of something and saying, what do you like more? It's, hey, I want to start a really high-end, quality-focused coffee company. N- now what? What's, what size bag should we have? What type of bag should we have? How should the bag feel? How should it look? What color should it have? What should the main logo be? Should there be a secondary logo? What is the name going to be? What should that name signify? Is it going to be right on the nose? Should it be a little bit more out there? Uh, there's all these questions I had. And so I decided the first and foremost important thing to decide was the name. And the reason I did it this way is because once you have a name, and it captures what you're trying to do, everything can kind of build around that. And so I knew that I wanted this brand to be an extension of my personality. And what I mean by that is like, I don't consider myself, even though I take pride in my taste in food and beverage, and I'm very particular about what I eat and drink, I don't like to be pretentious about it. And I don't like to be that guy. I definitely was that guy in the beer world at one point. And once I had the self-actualization moment that like, dude, people don't even want to invite you to parties because you're going to be that guy talking about the beer. And it's not fun for almost everyone. I, I quickly dialed it back and I still had the passion for it. But there's a there's a way to approach it without pretentiousness. You want to do it in a way that somebody gets excited and wants to try it, not like they feel like they should be honored to try it. And this translated exactly to coffee. And so I knew the brand I wanted to start needed to have a name that represented that, something that is not pretentious, has a ring to it, but I also wanted it to have a local tie to Minnesota. However, I didn't want it to be just right on the nose Minnesota named because I'm a huge, huge proponent of buying local, but I don't buy something just because it's local. I'm not going to buy something that's locally made if it's not good. If there are two options, one is locally made, one is a superior product, I'm choosing the superior product. And so my thinking is I want to take pride in where I'm from and where we're starting this company, but I don't want it to be the first reason you buy it. I want you to buy it I, I, I want you to buy it because it's amazing and it's local, not exclusively because it's local. Maybe those get flipped around. And you go, the first time I buy it is because it's local and then I like the taste and now I'm buying it for the taste. But I needed a name that signified that. And I, I had this Word document of literally hundreds of names. And I just, it was a total, total, just word vomit of the brain of everything I could think of being from Minnesota that reminded me of home, whether it's lakes, whether it's La Trois du Nord, the star of the North, the, the state motto that's on our flag, whether it's like, do we do something resembling something really cold? And so I had all these different veins of thought that were going through. And it, this was a very difficult process because you're kind of, you create, I create this list of hundreds of names and I'm just crossing them out one by one and providing reasons why. And one that ended up sticking out is I had a list of brand names and then I was also trying to create a list of um, coffee names. So once we have the brand decided, what are potential names for a coffee single origin or blend? And one of my 
favorite places in the Twin Cities is the Stone Arch Bridge. It's absolutely beautiful. It's one of the best views of the city. It's one of those really cool landmarks that if you're from Minnesota, you know what the Stone Arch Bridge is. If you're not from Minnesota, you don't know what it is. And that's so it's like this cool, almost like inside, uh, like secret that we have this amazing, uh, this amazing bridge, this monument uh, to the Twin Cities that only we know about. And so I, I wanted to incorporate that. And initially it, it was for a blend. I was like, okay, we could do like the stone arch blend. And again, I don't like things that are like right on the nose. And so I was like, that's not like sexy enough. It's not cool enough. So what is something about the stone arch bridge? And so I literally was just researching the stone arch bridge, the story of it, who built it, when was it built? Why was it built? What did it do for the city? And one of my favorite stories about it was that James J. Hill is this, uh, like railroad ty tycoon uh, and built almost every major thing in Minnesota at the time. And he was the one that was funding the building of the Stone Arch Bridge. Now, people in the cities thought it was a ridiculous proposition. It was really expensive to build. Uh, they they thought it was a, a stupid idea. And so they nicknamed the bridge while it was being built. They nicknamed it Hill's Folly. And I love that story because it wasn't until the bridge was finished that people fell in love with it. It was major utility to the city and helped the city grow to what it is today. And so I was like, that is like exactly what I want to do. I'm, I'm doing something like pretty stupid, quitting a job I like uh, with an upward trajectory and starting something that everyone's kind of looking at me and going like, what? coffee, dude? Are you sure, Brad? Like, is that what you want to do? And so something really stupid. But I wanted to build it something that people go, this is what we're proud of in Minnesota. And so I love that story. And so I had the folly blend. Or I had the, no, it was the hills folly blend with that whole backstory. But as I'm going through this name, I go, you know what? Folly just like is sticking in my brain. And then I look up like, what is the actual literal definition of folly? And it's a sense of foolishness. And I'm like, if you want something that encapsulates, encapsulates my personality, a sense of foolishness is right there. And I was like, this is perfect. Like that name, it just hits so hard. It's like, it's got the story of Minnesota. It's got like a sense of foolishness. It's, it's exactly what I want to do with this, this business is start something that people go, you're dumb. And then hopefully build it to something that people from Minnesota are proud that it's from here. And so that is when I decided the name Folly was, it was going to be Folly Coffee Roasters. And that, that was when everything really started to kind of snowball in terms of building the brand. Also keep in mind, this is all stuff that I'm like, thinking about while I'm bartending, while I'm driving Lyft, while I'm strength coaching, like every waking moment, I'm doing like eight different things in my head, which if you know me, is I'm learning more and more, I think is my norm, which is probably not too healthy, but I have the name. It was a monumental moment, monumental moment. And I was just like, yes, that's it. Folly. Now what? Okay. I need to create a brand identity, a logo, a feel but I am pretty cash poor. I just have my personal savings and that's about it. So I need to stretch every single dollar I have. And so fortunately my sister, shout out Emily, uh, went to Mizzou for journalism and amazing creative program there. So I go, she's gotta know someone that's talented fresh out of college. And sure enough, she goes, well, I've my, my friend Luke, I'd met him at graduation. He and I clicked uh, while just hanging out. Uh, she goes, he's really talented. Uh, he doesn't have a job right now. He's looking to build his portfolio. I'm sure he'd cut you a pretty advantageous deal to be able to build the brand for you. And the way Luke 
does work clicked so like we just vibed so hard on how we approached it uh, I told him what I wanted to do I wanted something that's not pretentious I wanted to exude fun but also quality which is a very difficult to think it's a difficult thing to do in branding the line between high quality and fun and gimmicky is very 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 fine because if you go too fun and gimmicky, you lose the focus on the fact that we're quality focused. If you go too quality, it becomes too serious and become too much like every other high-end coffee company out there. But he understood what I was trying to do. And so he said, I want you to send me a mood board. Send me a mood board of all the brands you think are cool. Doesn't even have to be coffee. In fact, I encourage it's not coffee. Send me brands that you think are cool and that are fun and quality. And then send me all the brands you think that you don't like. Things that are snobby. Things that are pretentious. Send me all of those. And so I ended up filling like 20 pages of Word documents. Uh, the things I didn't want to be like. The things I didn't like. Not that I don't like what they're doing. Blah, blah, blah. Politically correct here. Uh, nothing but love. But brands like Gucci. Prada, Rolex, Ferrari, Lamborghini, all these super, super high-end brands, their branding is really effective that when you look at it, you go, this is just quality, like pretentious, best of the best. And I was like, I do not want it to look like that. I included a lot of wine labels, like wine is the ultimate pretentiousness industry. Like you should be honored to drink this wine. It's very Hanukkah has the oak char. And I did not want that. And so... Then for the brands I liked, the most memorable one to me that I think when you look at Folly, it makes sense. I sent a lot of DJs branding, specifically like Steve Aoki has like really sick branding, like Steve Aoki, Marshmallow, all these DJs, they're high energy, but they're really well respected for the music they make within the EDM category or genre, I'll say. And I was like, these just scream energy at me. I also included a lot of different craft breweries because I think craft beer does an amazing job at like, we make the best beers in the world, but we don't take ourselves seriously at all. And our branding is super fun. Our branding is fun. Our naming is fun. So between like EDM and craft beer, like all these different cool brands, uh, he came back with some initial concepts. The, the, the only parameter I gave him is I said, look, you're better. You're more knowledgeable at this than me. So you run with what I just gave you. The only parameter is that it has to tie the stone arch bridge into the logo without it being obvious. So you somehow have to incorporate the stone arch bridge into the logo without looking, without it just literally being the stone arch bridge. And he was totally up for the task. After he got me back the initial like round of sketches and drawings, uh, there were it was really tough because he had like three or four really really cool concepts, but. The one that jumped out right away was the Folly face, like the logo as it is known to be now. It was obviously a very initial rough pencil sketch of it, but it jumped at me because you had the face, one eye was a coffee cup, one was an X. It had kind of like this like really like high energy, but like unique and different kind of like high energy, but also like angry, neutral at the same time in like a not aggressive way. And then the coolest thing about it was he took the outline of the stone arch bridge and made it look like teeth. And so when you just glance at our logo, it looks like this odd face thing with like a, a mean row of uh, bottom teeth. 
But the hidden message in our logo is the Stone Arch Bridge. His mouth is an outline of the Stone Arch Bridge. And I was like, that is so cool. Like, nobody will ever see that unless you tell them that. It's like this total hidden thing. And that's my favorite type of logo. It's like, oh, the famous one is the FedEx logo. Once somebody points out to you that there is an arrow hidden in between the E and the X of FedEx, you can never unsee it. But you almost would never look at it and find it on your own. And it always takes someone else pointing out to you. And it's like, that's what I want. That's what I want in the logo. I want something present like that that has a story. The Stone Arch Bridge. We're from Minnesota. We're proud to be from Minnesota. And I saw that and I said, that's what we're going to build this branding around. That's what the packaging is going to feature. This is what the website's going to feature. Our merch. It's going to be what stickers are. And I just like immediately started like going through all these different directions we could take it. And so we had the name. We had the logo. And then the next step was he found like all these different fonts. And so we found a font we were really happy with that was like the balance between quality and fun. That And again, that's that's an area that I know nothing about, fonts. But you would be amazed. I If you are going to start something, I know it is tempting to go out to Fiverr.com. I know it's tempting to just do a really simple logo. I know it's tempting to just do something and to go, oh, that's nice. We'll go with that. And then someday down the road when we've got the funds, we'll make something a little more professional. Well, I'll tell you what. You only get one opportunity for somebody to look at your brand or look at your logo and be attracted to it. So if you miss that first opportunity, you may never get it again. And I'm not talking just about the end customer. I'm not talking just about the person that may buy the product. I'm talking about like buyers at retail for us, cafes, restaurants. If they're going to look at that logo and it's boring, it might not make them want to learn more about the coffee itself. And so I highly recommend if you're going to do something Go find a professional, even if it like technically at the time he was like professionally trained in the sense that he had a degree in this. So he was extremely knowledgeable. And so something as simple as a font to listen to him talk about fonts would be like listening to me talk about coffees. You're like, I did not know all these things exist about fonts. So he took the mood I wanted it to give found a font and he's like, this is the one we're going to use. And I just immediately, I'm like, yes, yes, it is. And so we have the logo, we have the font, uh, I'm, we're building out the facility in Silver Lake. And then the next step is package design. Uh, we decided on 12 ounces, just purely based on the sense that uh, it seemed to be the industry standard for specialty coffees, the 12 ounce uh, bag, uh, the 12 ounces made it so that we could price competitively within the market. Uh, while still having enough coffee that you don't feel like you're getting gypped, like a, like smaller sizes, it starts to get a little bit squirrely of like, am I overpaying for a smaller amount of coffee? And then the next question was like, what type of bag are we going to use? And we ended up falling on this bag kind of out of accident, but it ended up being one of the best things about the branding was one of the hardest things. Uh, most small roasters use a generic bag and they put a sticker on it. And the way I think about things is how can I do things differently from how most people in my category or business are doing it? So I go, if most people are using generic bags, I want to have pre-printed bags. Pre-printed bags have just an extra added professionalism to them. Uh, even though we're a super small company, you wouldn't know it by looking at our bag. So when you see it, you go, this is cool. I wanted it to have uh, a matte feel. Uh, so that it's got kind of almost like a soft touch to it. 
Uh, and I wanted it to have a lot of surface area so that we could put it'd be as much of a billboard on any shelf or picture that you would see. And part of what dictated the limitations of the packaging was it pre-printed packaging. You have to order so many bags up front. If you're ordering small quantities of pre-printed bags, the price goes so high that you're not going to be able to make the margin you, you want to make on your product. And so we had to find a supplier that was willing to do very, very small minimum quantity orders. And we ended up finding one out of Kansas City called KJB through a mutual friend. And he had a cool program. Uh, I don't know if he still does it, but he had a cool program where it was a co-op order. So most companies is a five thousand bag minimum order at the time we had three varieties of coffee uh so we're talking this was going to end up being tens of thousands of dollars to go with any other company and he had a co-op program where he got a group of small coffee companies to go in on a five thousand uh unit order and so we were ordered to able to order just a thousand each of our initial pre-printed bags and that was a huge relief because it was able to keep us uh you know cash in the bank and not have to take a loan and so we were able to have cash flow early on in the business uh because of that and so we decided on a pre-printed bag then came the design the design the way i looked at it is the earlier episode about my favorite business books my favorite one of all time is blue ocean strategy long long story short it's a terrible way to sum it up but you want to do things that people aren't doing because it gives you a competitive advantage and so the way i decided on the packaging is i every week Anytime I had an opportunity, I would jump into a grocery store, I would jump into a cafe, I would jump into any place that's selling coffee and go to where they were selling their coffee and I would just sit back and stare at the coffee shelves for like 20, 30 minutes at a time. And I would look at what is every coffee company out there doing? What's similar across the entire industry? The trends I found in coffee from the packaging side only is that in the high end of coffee, most of the packaging seemed to be kind of like that, that craft material, kind of like a cardboard looking with like a, a very nice stoic label on it. That was one version. The other, the other side was like really bright, intricate packaging with a lot of beautiful artwork. And like when you're holding the bag, it's cool to look at all the small details. But on a shelf, it gets really busy. And so I go, okay, so what people are doing now is really bright colors with intricate artwork or they're doing like very simple packaging, very muted colors, all very similar style. And so I said, what we need is a dark background. It needs to be very simple and it needs to have an element of bright color on it. So that way with the dark background, it pops out from the rest of it because it's different than the bright intricate artwork. It's different than that craft simple finish. So the simple dark background makes it stick out. And then a clean logo right on the front of that bag is what's going to make it pop. And so we decided to use what's called pop science is the color scheme we use. And pop science color scheme is like not neon, but it is very like bright, vibrant colors. So you have this dark navy background with bright, vibrant colors on the front. And what we what we decided is that we would color code the different coffees. So instead of having the logo be the same on each coffee, we would have the eyes of the logo be the same, but it would be a different color and a different mouth. 
to signify what the different coffees would be. And so the reason we did that is because I realized most people will probably never learn the names of our coffees. Most people will never say, I like the Folly Classic Joe. They're going to say, I like the yellow one. They're not going to say, I like the Folly House Bean. They're going to say, I like the blue one. And so by color coding, you make it much, much easier to remember. So when you see it on the shelf, it's easy to remember. We try to make the colors kind of reminiscent of what kind of coffee there. So when you look at it, you kind of get a feel for what that coffee might taste like, which sounds weird, but Jeff, to this day, will say that he tastes in colors and he's one of the best tasters in the country. So who am I to doubt him? Uh, so once we decided on that, uh, we launched with three different coffees, which were kind of the, the reason I went with three is because at the time I considered there to be three dominant taste profiles of coffee, fruit forward, which was my personal favorite. So we just call it house bean, not house blend house bean, because it's a single origin bean. And so the reason I made that the house is because I'm like, well, it's my personal favorite. I get the most excited about it. Hopefully other people do too. Fruit forward coffees. The classic Joe, we called that because there's like this just classic profile, usually South American coffees that are just like nutty and chocolatey. And it's like a very approachable style. And I knew this is one that a lot of people would uh, gravitate towards too because it's a very uh, approachable, familiar profile, but it's a much higher quality level without that like face ripping bitterness that you get out of a lot of those coffees. And then the whiner, uh, spelled like wine, uh, like the drink, the winer, we call it that because we look for coffees with a really nice, bright acidity, like a good wine. And so we launched with the three. Um, I thought this was going to be a single episode about Folly, Filtera, market strategy, how we launched, how I sold, uh, and all of that good stuff. And I'm realizing right now I'm sitting at right about 55 minutes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop it here and I'm going to turn this into a multi-part episode. So this episode, the, the point we're at now is we've built out the facility to launch January of 2018. We have the brand name decided. We have the brand logo decided. And we're beginning to... I'll wrap up this episode with how we came to decide the final actual branding of the bags. So... We, once I described to Luke what I wanted, I wanted a simple logo featuring those faces on the front. I want the name Folly to be super prominent. And then the back is going to be completely about how we choose our coffees so that you know what you're getting in each bag and how we roast it. He sent back some designs and this was the toughest decision of all because he had one or two designs that were pieces of artwork. I literally told him, I want this blown up into a poster. I want to frame it. This is a piece of artwork so beautifully designed, so many intricate parts to it that were awesome looking. But ultimately it's like, you know, it looks good up close, but on a shelf or quickly browsing through Instagram or whenever you're first encountering that logo, it's too intricate. It's almost too beautiful to work effectively. I need something super simple. So we ultimately decided on the most simple of all of his designs. And then the copy on the back, I just wrote myself. I figured if I just spoke very, I, I, I do a lot of the times I'll just speak into one of those audio translators so that the copy, which is the industry term for like the writing uh, on packaging and stuff, uh, I'll do audio to text translator so that my voice literally translates to any copy we use. So I just kind of off the top of my head talked about why are our coffees 
different or like why is this coffee uh, more expensive how do we do things a little differently um, and and the the major thing we do differently is the house being classic joe winer they all rotate origins but those flavor profiles stay the same so the house being you're always getting fruit forward classic joe you're always getting nutty chocolatey winer you're always getting really nice bright acidity but the origins change the reason this is important is because most people aren't going to get to the level that they know processing methods, origins, uh, altitude, it's grown, all these different things that contribute to flavor. They just want to know what is the, the flavor profile of this coffee. Not, I'm not talking flavored coffees like hazelnut. I'm talking like flavor profile of this coffee. And realizing that I wanted to rotate the origins but keep those flavor profiles. So that's the biggest thing we do differently is we're never holding on to a coffee for really more than three or four months unroasted. And that keeps freshness at like a super high level and it results in a final cup that is excellent. And I also just talk a little bit about our roasting process. Um, and so Luke get me, gets me this initial design. Uh, I it's a struggle to, to say no to the other ones, but I picked the most simple design for the sake of it looks better on a shelf. It looks better from far away. It's, it's more eye-catching despite being more simple. And then I took this initial digital image and tried to meet with anyone and everyone in the food and beverage industry to get their feedback on. And one of them, I'll skip a bit ahead, but the next episode will kind of be like, how did I get into stores? But one of them was I met with Julie Griffin, who's the, the, the grocery buyer at London Byerly's, which is a chain of 20 plus grocery stores in the Twin Cities. They're awesome chain of stores. And I went to her, not even really in a sales pitch, but just initially like, this is what I'm thinking the packaging should look like. And she gave some amazing feedback. The most simple thing that to this day is still on the bag and is the thing that most people point out is like, I like that a lot, is you really need something that says this is roasted in Minnesota. Just having the outline of Minnesota could be really great for the brand. I go, that is so simple. Can't believe I haven't thought of that. We added it. And that was really the final edition, uh, the final edition of the packaging. And that's what is on the shelves today. So that's where I'm going to wrap up this episode. Episode The second part of this, I'll, I'll launch into while we're still pre-market and how I was able to start, to, like how I started meeting with customers, uh, how, the things I told them about to get into stores, which stores we got into, how that worked, and then the major challenges. Like what were the hardest things? What did I expect to be hard and was hard, but what did I not expect at all? That will be part two. So I'm going to end this one like I end every one of these episodes and say have a great day.